Chef Life Radio is on the air. We're putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a mission from God. Yeah, just not in the way you think.
yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I gave up cigarettes, I didn't give up smoking. We chef. The last table is served. The station is broken down. Everything's labeled and put away. Your inventory is complete. Now it's time to meet me on the back dock where all the most important meetings are held. We chef. Take a deep breath. Enjoy a job well done. At ease, kick off your clogs, smoke them if you got them. I'm your host, Adam Lamb. I'm here to assist you in succeeding in your culinary career. I'm a chef and culinary career coach offering guidance to those who know it's time for a change. Offering a shift in perspective. After all, no one knows you or your career aspirations better than you. If that's you, then call me at 518-227-2055 and let's get your career cooking. Here at Chef Life Radio, we believe that working in a kitchen should be demanding. Should, just shouldn't have to be demeaning. It should be hard, just doesn't have to be harsh. We believe that it's possible to have more solidarity and less suck-it-up sunshine, more compassion and less cutthroat island. We believe in more partnership and less put-up-or-shut-up, more family, less fuck you. Yep, it's going to be a long show. I better have a tall glass of Keto OS. That's right. Keto. It's the new Pedialyte. <laughs> we drop new episodes the first Sunday of every month. You can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play on Facebook.com forward slash Chef Life Radio on Twitter at Chef Life Radio. Oh, yes. Chef Life Radio is a production of Foodworks Inc., providing a safe haven for culinary professionals who want to grow and move forward in their career and life. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Chef Life Radio. Great stuff. Ready for download. Get clear. Get ahead at audibletrial.com forward slash Chef Life Radio. The Heritage Foundation. The Heirloom Foundation, a not-for-profit organization advocating for healthier work environments through their network of chefs, restaurateurs, and other industry stakeholders who commit to providing a healthy... The Heirloom Foundation, a not-for-profit... A- a- the Heirloom Foundation, a non-for-profit organization advocating for healthier work environments through their network of chefs, restaurateurs, and other industry stakeholders who commit to providing a healthy, supportive restaurant culture. Don't just carp about how shitty things are. Take action and support your brothers and sisters at theheirloomfoundation.org. Chefs with issues. Enough said, right? For fuck's sake, don't suffer in silence, brah. Resources, solutions, and a kind hand up all can be found at chefswithissues.com. Why? Because somewhere, someone gives a fuck whether you live, live successfully or die before your time. And our newest partner, Entrepreneurial Chef Magazine, from idea to open for business. EntrepreneurialChef.com is building an online community where entrepreneurs in the industry can share lessons, best practices, and actionable advice for greater lasting success. Visit entrepreneurialchef.com, join the club, and get your free copy of The Ten Rules of Entrepreneurship. So let's get a kick in with a couple quotes. There is a very physical element to the work that chefs do in kitchens. The very first time I ate at Number 9 Park was about 10 years ago, and my now husband and I went for dinner. And we're so excited to go to Boston and eat there. And I remember looking into the kitchen at the end of my meal and seeing Barbara Lynch on the line, eight months pregnant, and killing it. Not everyone can do that. By Gail Simmons. From Maria Deegan from a book called Relevance Matter More. She writes, a sous chef with dreams of her own restaurant empire may have mastered the art of classical French sauce making, 
but not yet have developed the signature cooking style she imagines as the cornerstone of her own chain of restaurants. She gauges her progress not only by whether she is moving towards her aspirations, but also by improving her skills. Our chef may not yet have the stature of Chef Escoffier or Emeril Lagasse, but she can remember a time when she could not name the five French mother sauces, let alone execute them. She's made progress. Appreciating the skills she has developed is a marker along the path toward her culinary aspirations. The sense of accomplishment that accompanies improved skills is one of the rewards we reap when we dedicate ourselves to mastery. And finally, anyone who is willing to turn their life upside down by becoming a cook is totally insane to begin with. So many chefs that I have met are dyslexic and totally not school people or intellectuals. That could be symbolic of the kind of lifestyle that they choose to live. They all drink a lot, do a lot of drugs, drink a shitload of coffee and espresso. They don't sleep much and obviously don't have much of a life outside the kitchen. A cook's friend is a cook. There isn't much time for a non-cook friend or girlfriend. And time really isn't the issue so much as it is the lifestyle and a culture that is very hard to understand or identify with unless you are on the inside. Cooks hang out with cooks because there is no one else awake, hungry, or totally wired at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. And that from Jennifer Topper in a book called 29 Jobs and a Million Lives. A little later in the show, we'll be talking to Carrie Underly, Master Butcher, about heritage breeds. What are they and why you should or shouldn't use them. But first, a little public service announcement for those in service. And this from the first part of a series that I'm writing for Entrepreneurial Chef Magazine. On point for most of us in the industry and something that we don't think about so much. If we're the frog in the beaker, then holy shit, is the water hot? But we don't know it yet because we're so used to staying stressed out and uncomfortable. Hell, I know that there is a certain segment of our population that loves the pain, makes them feel alive, relevant, and so on their game. But I'm here to tell you that we all pick our own ways to die. For me, it was eating adrenaline until my adrenals gave out, salt and sugar until my pancreas started to crash, and my best friend wonders aloud to anyone who'll listen that it is a impossibility in the physical world we live in that my liver is still in good condition. There was a time when I recognized that I was just a passenger in a jalopy driven by a madman. My body wasn't going to crash as much as it was just going to wear out. My body finally screamed stop in the only way it knew, putting me flat on my back for six months, making sure I learned the lesson well with two titanium rods screwed into my spine for good measure as a constant reminder against ever forgetting again to take care of myself. In the spirit of giving to those that give, listen up, y'all, to your creepy Uncle Adam because he's going to lay it all out for you. If you want to learn more about this series of articles and more, click on the banner in the show notes because publisher Sean Wenner is giving away a free subscription for a year to every single listener of Chef Life Radio. It's a beautiful rag, wonderfully done, and if you haven't yet picked up a copy, take Sean up on his generosity and subscribe for a whole year for free. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Spoiler alert, these are stressful times. Whether you're ready to take the jump into entrepreneurship now or in the near future, changing jobs, starting a new relationship, or ending an old one, there are truckloads of reasons to be uncomfortable right now. A lot is going on. I say this with the awareness that only a fool states the obvious because I'm pretty sure that you can feel the speed at which events seem to be taking place around you. World politics, business trends, stock volatility, family, even friends appear to be all over the place right now. We certainly don't need another article reminding us of the effects of stress on our bodies, mind, and spirit. These have all been well documented and are readily available in our news feeds. Neither do we need yet another blog post reminding us of what's wrong in the world or the challenges in our industry. I don't know about you, but reading commentaries like that only help to increase my level of discomfort, leaving me helpless to change anything or worse yet wondering, what the hell do I think I'm doing? 
better to hunker down in the bunker and let the storm pass, right? With so much going on that has the potential to affect us personally, we are spending more time being uncomfortable than not. I'm not going to suggest for a minute that we bury our collective heads in the sand and ignore information that may assist us in charting a path to personal and professional success. I'm also not going to advise you to give your power away to every new method, strategy, or process that ends up in your inbox. Recently, I've been paralyzed by the influx of emails that often contain conflicting information about how to market my business or earn an additional $10,000 a month. I mean, who doesn't want to earn more money every month? If I chase down every one of those ideas to their logical conclusions, not only will I have spent a staggering amount of money, but I probably would have few results to show for my efforts. So if we can agree that some, if not most of us, are anxious or agitated for any number of reasons right now, may I suggest that we start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable? The question is, how do we? I'm going to propose a few things that have worked for me. Maybe one or two of them will assist you in getting grounded and centered, regardless of the fact that all around you, events or conditions may seem unsteady. I'm going to use the word honor in the following recommendations for a very particular reason. Wikipedia defines honor as... An abstract concept entailing a perceived quality of worthiness and respectability that affects both the social standing and the self-evaluation of any individual corporate body, such as family, school, regimen, or nation. My question to you is, don't you think you're worthy of honoring yourself? I was taught, trained, or shamed into believing that as a man and as a professional, I had to have an obligation to honor family, coworkers, bosses, and clients or customers first before all else including me. What I have come to understand intimately is that only when I honor and respect myself first can I honor others at all. Honor yourself yourself first. Do anything that gets you into your heart first. No, I'm not talking about that thing. I may enjoy bourbon, but I know from bitter experience that drinking is only a distraction from what I'm feeling. It cannot facilitate what I'm feeling. For some people, getting out in nature is a surefire way to get them in their heart. For others, it may be playing with their children. I enjoy using the hot tub, and believe it or not, love a soak in the bathtub, just like Winston Churchill. Some I've spoken to say that the quickest path to their heart is the physical act of making love. For some, it might be getting a mani-pedi or getting manscaped. For others, it might be some body work, such as yoga, Pilates, Tai Chi, running, or cycling. While those are all activities that promote a sense of well-being and dump endorphins into the bloodstream, I'm suggesting something a little different. Depending on what type of person you are, feeling your best in the morning or in the evening, there is a trash of time that you can carve out that is yours and yours alone. Anthony Bourdain, after all, while writing Kitchen Confidential, got up at 4 a.m. so that he could write by himself before his wife or children woke up for the day. When I propose putting yourself at the top of the totem pole, I'm saying that you should, not that you must, have some time in each day that is spent for and by yourself. Do that thing that most fluidly and efficiently gets you into your heart. Once connected thus, you can get in that quiet space in which all possibilities exist at the same time. Some athletes call it being in the zone, while artists describe it as inspiration, and quantum mechanics have now named it flow. Whatever name you place on it, it is inconsequential, if only because it, by its very nature, flow is elusive. It can only be approached in stealth and in silence. To get into that state, you must release any intention of achieving anything or arriving at any destination. To reach the state of most fluidity, one must start with no thought. Come on, Adam. Come on, Adam. That's crazy talk. I don't have a moment to spare in my day, and if I did, the hedges need to be trimmed. I get it. We're all busy. What I'm offering is that if you can start or end your day grounded, you will be able to achieve more, have less attachment to outcomes, and enjoy your life more. Someone I worked with advised me to start meditating to heal my body. Anyone who knows me would say that that was a laughable, that that was laughable guidance. 
my brain can sometimes be a clutter of competing conversations and the prospect of quieting my mind seemed impossible. After two back surgeries and the pain that came from trying to correct my posture constantly, I was ready to try anything. I was encouraged to start with 10 minutes at a time and do some deep breathing. Then I went was to imagine light filling my back and to create a space mentally in which the healing could occur. I gave it about three months and went about the task, if not earnestly, at least, at least well-intentioned. My intent, however, didn't seem to make any difference in my level of pain or lessen my level of discomfort. Frustrated, I stopped meditating and put the whole thing behind me, resigned to the sobering fact that my back would probably never get any better. Then by chance, I got into my heart. As I said before, something magical happens when I get into a hot tub. There I was a few weeks later after abandoning my meditation practice, sitting in the tub at the local YMCA when I suddenly realized that the reason meditation hadn't worked was that I was trying to achieve some result instead of just enjoying the activity itself. I felt a little like Homer Simpson, silly with the recognition that I would never make my back any better, precisely because I was trying to achieve that particular result. A few days later, after my epiphany, emboldened by this new insight, I tried meditating again. This time, I found it enjoyable and even more comforting because I wasn't trying to get anywhere or make anything specific happen. I was now only focused on enjoying the quiet time with myself, breathing deeply, releasing any tension in my body until nothing. No words, no thoughts, no conversations. Just an opportunity to be with no distractions, to-dos, have-tos, or responsibilities pulling at me. Now, every morning I spend my quiet time up before anyone else in a meditative state for no reason except that it leaves me grounded, peaceful, and comfortable. I end up feeling better in my skin, more secure, and more capable. It's only 10 minutes, but it's my 10 minutes, and it's precious to me. I know that you can find yours no matter how you choose to spend it. The main point to remember is that it's a discipline, something you do to honor and respect yourself every day so you don't forget. I love the idea of calling it a practice because, as we all know, you can't make a mistake in practice. And it's all okay because you're practicing. Now, doesn't that feel comfortable? Recognize the time or situation that makes you feel uncomfortable. Instead of trying to soldier or force your way through it, step back emotionally, if not physically. If in a discussion that stresses you out, renegotiate another time to come back to it. Immediately go and do something, anything that will get you back into your heart. Breathe and allow grace for you and others in your, to your heart. Re-engage your life centered and grounded. Now, there's a whole lot more of the article, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. But for now, play around the, with the idea of creating a morning or evening ritual, discipline, or practice where you can make time for you and only you doing something that you love. Mentally push everything and everyone away from your awareness, if only for 10 minutes. See what kind of peace or clarity you experience. It may not necessarily change the circumstances around you, but you may feel different about them. As Ken Perois so adroitly put it, true success is achieved by stretching oneself, learning to feel comfortable being uncomfortable. The only question remains is, are you willing to get comfortable with discomfort in order to achieve real success?
And that was Shannon Kerfman. Oh, well, totally badass. I want to remind everyone that they're listening to Chef Life Radio, a production of Foodworks Incorporated, foodworksinc.com, empowerment, advocacy, and inspiration for chefs, a safe haven for culinary professionals who want to grow and move forward in their career, 
and more importantly, in their life. Speaking of badass, we got to sit down with Master Butcher and Educator Carrie Underly of Range Partners in Chicago recently. Range has been helping companies in the fresh meat industry since 2002 by developing award-winning merchandising tools and market strategies to promote their products. They offer training and certification programs to improve the ability to satisfy the customer and increase profitability throughout the food channel. Carrie is a third-generation butcher and author of The Art of Beef Cutting, which was nominated for a James Beard Foundation Award and International Association of Culinary Professionals Award in 2012. Carrie's favorite role is that of an educator. She travels the country conducting meat training seminars and demonstrations for corporations and meat enthusiasts. Carrie is looking to add in-depth training with the introduction of both online and on-site training and certification on the horizon. So if you're looking for a place to sharpen your chops, yeah, sorry about that crappy pun, check out rangepartners.com. No one is teaching this stuff anymore. Here's our interview with Carrie, and if you'd like to see the video of the interview, head on over to foodworksinc.com forward slash TV. There you go. I can hear you now. <laughs> so I was, I'm, I have an L track right next to me, so I wasn't sure what part of this you wanted to record. I'm so- going to record it all. It's Chicago. I mean... It's my hometown. I know what L's sound like. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. So, cause I can, I have a little kitchenette. I could kind of go into another room if that would help, but yeah. it's literally right on. I love it. <laughs> so hello. Hi. How are you? I'm well. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. All right. I really thank you for making time today. I really appreciate your uh, participation and your guidance. Sure. Um, First off, how's it going in Chicago? Well, global warming, I'm not a fan of, but we're on the right side of it right now. Um, I've got a lot of construction going on over here. McDonald's moved in a couple blocks, and so everything is under construction. Corporate so, McDonald's. So, Carrie, for, for anyone who doesn't know you yet, shame on them, but can you kind of give us a, a, an idea of what you're doing at, at you and Range Partners are doing? Sure. Um, my company, like you said, is is called Range, and we're here in Chicago. And I'm a meat expert, educator, trainer. So I wrote the book, The Art of Beef Cutting. Mm-hmm. And what really kind of evolved from that was just this need for training and education. And um, what's really driving that movement is kind of local, local meats. And when we talk about carrots and lettuce, it's kind of easy. <laughs> but when we look at animal production... Um, there's a big learning gap. So I've been really focusing on um, training the next generation of butchers and entrepreneurs. Now, when you say there's been a gap in education, um, do you find that all across the industry? The meat industry? Uh, meat and culinary industry, because I imagine that you, I mean, you were named uh, uh, by the by the Beard Foundation as, a, as, as one of their mm-hmm. culinary professionals. So... Yes, um... You know, I think in general, I mean, one, if culinary school isn't cheap, so, you know, folks are trying to teach themselves. Um, when we focus on meat, um, particularly, and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's expensive. So students don't have the opportunity to get their hands in a lot of meat. And so right. they're really learning how to order meat right. instead of how to buy it and sell it and prepare it. So, um, you know, we need skilled jobs. I mean, look what's happened with the beer industry, right? With craft beer. I mean, there's a brewery on every corner now, and those are local jobs in our communities. And, you know, I think that's the, the, the way it's going with meat and butchery and local. 
I think it's fantastic that, you know, I remember back in the day when you actually wanted meat, you went to a butcher shop. You very rarely bought that at a grocery store. And then, you know, somewhere in the 70s and 80s, that whole dynamic flipped. And now it's coming back to small butcher shops, artisans, craftsmen like yourself, um, really at the forefront of like bringing that lost art back. So kudos on you, man. Thank you. And it's near and dear to my heart. I'm a third generation butcher and my dad had a butcher shop in the seventies and eighties and we did lose it to kind of the evolution of the grocery store boom. Right. And so, you know, I didn't think it would come back. So I'm really excited to see um, the need for skills and, and bringing those jobs back. So that's near and dear to me. And, and considering the fact that, you know, you grew up in the industry and also went through kind of what I can only imagine was a family tragedy and losing the shop. What was it about that this particular craft that brought you back to it? Well, to be honest, I was trying to get out of it. Um, you know, I put my way through college cutting meat and I was thinking, you know, my dad lost his butcher shop. So I like to say he was a really good butcher, but not a good businessman. Mm-hmm. So I went to business school and honestly, I didn't really see, I didn't want to go work in a slaughterhouse. That just wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sell meat to large chains and there really wasn't a big opportunity for me. And I got to tell you, my mom is also an artist and a sculptor. And what's really powerful about that is this hand, you know, when you, when you break down a side of beef, it's like sculpting. And so I always like to say people in the meat business always try to get out, but they can't. Right. (laughs) Um, There's just something powerful, grounding, nurturing, you know, to be able to take that animal that a farmer spent you know, two, three years nurturing that animal and then being able to convert that into sustaining protein for people to eat is kind of what keeps me going. So I also know that you're, um, a whole, uh, a whole animal advocate. And I, uh, one of my favorite cookbooks was written, uh, I think in the forties or fifties, a, a book by a Presbyterian minister called, uh, dinner of the lamb, which was basically a cookbook on how you, take an entire side of lamb and craft meals for an entire week out of it. And that used to be the norm in the industry. You know, when we were strapping on our whites, it wasn't, it wasn't ordering, you know, beautifully cryovacked meat in a box. It was actually bringing in a half of an animal and breaking it down. And the real artistry uh, that I feel in the culinary profession is being able to take something and make something out of everything. That's, you know, that still has craftsmanship and beauty and, you know, can touch all the, all the sensual aspects of, of dining. And somewhere along the way, I don't know, there's a guy by the name of Paul Sargal, who's a, a chef who writes some really beautiful stuff. And he says that, you know, we as an industry abdicated the responsibility for, for training our, our acolytes to culinary schools because it was cheaper to do that than having someone as an apprentice for, you know, five years and teaching them all every little aspect is much easier to kind of get a ready-made package out of culinary school. But the backside of that was, is like you mentioned earlier, it became cost prohibitive for most culinary schools to actually have master butchery classes where they would break down an entire side. So not only did we lose out, but they lost out as well. And now we've got a whole bunch of guys in a kitchen who none of them know how to break down an animal. 
You're right. It's, 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 it's very true. And, and they want that knowledge now. They're looking to be trained. They want to go back to, to those, um, old authentic ways. You know, the challenge that you mentioned is it's a whole animal. So, you know, when we think about regional meats, now we're getting back into heritage breed animals that were put in those certain regions to handle the climate, you know, so you know, there's Brahmin cattle in Texas. That's not necessarily a heritage breed, but those are um, animals that handle hot weather. So you wouldn't want right. to put that kind of breed up in North Dakota. So now we have this regional uh, meat that's coming back. And so when we think about whole animals, specifically like for hogs, right? there's a lot of fat there, you know, and for years the consumer said, we do not want fat, but the good news is, is fat's back. <laughs> so, right. you know, if, if we can figure out a way to teach them and merchandise the whole animal, including the fat, then we're all going to be profitable. But it's not necessarily as easy as as we think. <laughs> so you mentioned about heritage breeds, and, and thank mm-hmm. you for bringing that up because that's the, kind of the focus of our conversation today. So when people talk about heritage breed, is that like primarily what they're talking about, meaning – animals acclimated to a certain area or are there other characteristics that would denote a heritage breed? Um, I mean, traditionally that's kind of where they evolved from. Um, a lot of the heritage breeds did come became out of favor because they just, you know, for example, if you're a ham pig, hams weren't necessarily uh, kind of a sexy thing at some point. Mm-hmm. But now if, if you're a charcuterie person and you want to do country hams, well, you probably want, you know, a Hampshire <laughs> hog, you know, to do that. Um, you think about like a Magnalista pig. Those pigs are do very well in cold weather because they're the fat pig. So they have all this layer of, mm-hmm. of fat. But, you know, if a chef orders that pig in and, all of a sudden starts cutting into it. There's not a lot of pork chops. There's right. a lot of lard. <laughs> right. Um, right. That, that sends me down so many rabbit holes, man. I, I can't even get to that now. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe it's important to understand how do heritage breeds differ from what we normally would see or characterize as industry animals. Yeah. So um, like in, in modern hog production, they, there's a couple of breeds and they are crossed to be good mamas and have good piglets and that they're lean. And so, you know, they've, um, white, white hogs are usually the ones that do that. Durox are very, um, part of that. It's a good cross. And so we've, we've bred them to be, you know, small back, a lean back fat. That's usually how they're measured. And so, um, hog producers aren't, paid if those hogs are fat. So through genetics, through feeding, through production, we've been able to kind of select that out. And so that way we can produce this leaner hog that everybody wants. And so what happens now is so because of that, these heritage breeds were no longer selected for their genetics because we didn't want the fat pig or we didn't want a big ham. You know, we wanted nice lean loins where everybody wants pork chop. And so we've bred that out and selected for those characteristics. But I think now even large um, hog producers are starting to bring back some of that fat into the genetics, which is good to see because consumers are now saying, you know, 
that fat isn't a fat's pretty tasty. So I, you know, I'm not as fascinated by the question as to why we got here, but it might serve some historical perspective. So do you think it was the consumers driving the producers or was it that we were doing such a poor job at educating consumers about what really served? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, consumers always drive the market. That's what, you know, we're always told and led to believe. So, you know, even, even if we look at no antibiotics in meat production, more and more producers now are trying to produce their animals with fewer and less antibiotics because the customer's saying, look, no mas. I don't, I, you know, we don't want that in there. Um, you know, I think it's just an evolution of, of, of the meat industry. You know, we don't have the small butcher shops where we can communicate. You know, there's not that relationship anymore. I mean, a lot of our, and I understand why it's happened, um, you know, a lot of case ready. So we've lost that interaction with the customers and a lot of meat people just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different cuts. They don't know how to talk to the consumer. They don't know how to tell right. them how to cook it or how to prepare right. it, you know? So it's just became this, you know, one cut Charlie, here's a pork chop and right. <laughs> move on, you know? Do you, do you think it's also kind of fascinating that uh, the resurgence of the heritage breeds kind of coincides with the mounting evidence that fat really isn't the enemy, but it's empty carb calories that really, and sugar that's really to blame for our current state of ill health in the United States. And, and, and more and more we're being encouraged to, to, to consume more fat, but high quality fat. So I think that's kind of fascinating. I mean, even I know in my own experience after switching to a keto diet over the last three, four months, not only have I consistently lost weight, but the higher fat content actually helps my brain focus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's what helped us, you know, proteins and fat and it, it kind of helped us evolve, but that's, that's another show. <laughs> yeah. Um, how can you tell if you're really buying heritage? Oh, um, well the taste, you have to trust who you're buying it from. Um, there are some programs that are Duroc based or Berkshire based that are kind of larger production. Mm -hmm. Um, if you are looking for something at a, at a grocery store, that would be one way to go. Um, talk to your chefs, talk to your local. If you have a look, if you're fortunate enough to have a local butcher shop, ask them, talk to them about their farmer. Usually if you're a, a whole animal restaurant or butcher shop, they love to talk about the farmer and that's the connection that um, is really excited. I mean, farmers didn't have the opportunity to sell direct. Usually the only way farmers would sell their animals would be to contract with a large buyer or take them to an auction barn and get the price that was available in that moment. Right. So, you know, we as consumers have to be willing to pay more. So that's one way you're going to know you're buying <laughs> heritage breed. Um, when we think, again, we're talking a lot about pork. Um, you're going to see intramuscular fat. So you're going to see some flakes of fat in the meat. Mm -hmm. um, chances are you will see skin on the pork chop. So you're going to have to be prepared if you're going to buy it from the butcher shop to buy the skin on, which is going to have extra fat. I personally like that. Some people <laughs> might be a little unsure of it, but you know, if you're going to migrate into to local meats, we do have to sell the whole thing. Um, you know, beef cattle, it's a little different. It's, it's more about grass fed is usually when we think about kind of local, not necessarily heritage breeds, but how the animals are finished. Right. So we're talking about all this lovely fat, but when we switch gears to grass fed beef, it's just the opposite. Right. Usually less fat. Much and so leaner. consumers are used to the American corn finished, well marbled steak that 
candidly, we all love. And so when we switch over to grass fed, the consumer has to be prepared that it's not going to have that same eating expectation. So they have to cook it a little differently. And, and that's a little bit of a learning curve.
insight into heritage birds? You know, that's not too much. Um, I, I know a lot more people are doing that just because they, um, it, it's good for the soil. It's good for, um, carbon you know, holding the carbon in the soil because they peck in the dirt I, I don't know a lot about the different varieties of poultry i just know it sure does taste good when you buy, <laughs> buy from the local farmer there's no doubt um but again we, it's it's if you're going to pay a little more for it and i think the challenge is how do you get better food into communities you know you know how, how do i tell a single mom that can't afford you know, a $30 whole chicken to right. not buy a $5 chicken at the grocery store. You know, I'd still rather have her buy the $5 chicken than what we were talking about earlier than buying the processed foods in aisle six. Yeah. It's kind of frightening how the better food is or, or the perceptive value of a bird or, or product is it becomes increasingly out of reach for those in most need of great nutrition. Mm-hmm. So there's a barrier there that we get to overcome, you know, in, in regards to, and let, we'll take it a couple different ways. So as far as heritage or, or grass finished beef, what are the cooking considerations that might make it different from say what we get out of Colorado? Um, for, well, for grass fed beef, you usually want to cook it a little bit higher and quicker um, and then slice it thin. It's because it's leaner. You don't want to overcook it. So, you know, a lot of chefs will kind of sear it and then slice it really thinly. Um, also, I think searing it and putting it in the oven instead of trying to grill it straight through, um, it is leaner. You can do some marinating with it as well, which kind of helps. And the other thing, the difference from, you know, meat out of Colorado, I should say, is that grass-fed animals tend to be smaller in size. So, therefore, you can cut the steak thicker. Right. You know, if you're buying um, a steak, a corn, typical corn finished steak, the, the animals are much larger, so they're going to cut the steaks thinner. So that's an advantage of, of grass-fed beef. Um, pork, you just got to make sure you don't set your grill on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I've made that mistake. I'm in Chicago, and I've put a nice beautiful fatty pork chop on the grill and I left to go grab a beer and I came back and my grill was on fire. So um, make sure you do some indirect grilling if you've got a good, well-marbled pork chop. Fantastic. Um, And here's probably the biggest question, uh, the elephant in the room. Why should we be using heritage breeds? Well, I was just at um, the American Grass-Fed Conference at Stone Barn um, in New York last week, I think. And I was really encouraged and, you know, I'm still learning, but it's really about how animals can repair the soil and, and keeping them, them on the land. So it helps with carbon sequest. I can't say that word. Carbon sequestration. There you go. <laughs> um, I am a butcher now, so, <laughs> Um, you know, so, so it's, it's good for the grasslands. It's good for the environment. It's good for local jobs. You know, we're, we're keeping those food dollars in our communities. It's like I said, it's good for the farmer. We just have to be able to buy it a little more consistently all around the world, basically, um, or in our communities to keep it moving. It's, it's a shift and it's a shift. And, you know, I would rather buy better food now and save on my medicine bill later in life. Yeah. Do you think that there's any um, cause and effect to like the more 
folks who can afford to purchase that quality will ultimately, in the end, enable the price to come down. Sure. With production I mean, if, volume. Yes. If we if we can support farmers, we can get volume in. I mean, that's another challenge with some of these smaller butcher shops. And that's why the larger chains do so well is they can push volume. Right. And so if, if these butcher shops can sell more, then that helps them buy better. They can pass the savings back to the producer. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it. Um, <laughs> what's, what's your hope for this trend? Well, just like beer, I'd like to see a local butcher shop on every corner. You know, I mean, and, and that's easy to say in Chicago, you sure. know, it's easy to say in large urban areas, um, folks who live in the, in the grasslands and in the center of the country who are farmers and ranchers, they're like, we do it all the time. It's called freezer beef and freezer pork. So that's not really a stretch. Um, I would like to see it mainstream. I mentioned before I'm on the mission to train and educate. And my goal is to open up a butchery trade school. So in the meantime, I'm working on online certification so folks can we're going to be shooting some videos here in the next week um, to kind of support that so we can teach the young people how to i mean anytime we can touch and make food with our hands it's going to be better and definitely that's the same with meat so that's kind of my hope Um, i'd like to see the country butcher shop come back i like to say uh my family lived the american dream and lost it and now we're going to bring it back yeah, to me, it's almost like um, the promise of of this energetic dance that we all get to be in when you know we start to heal the land and small producers ended up and end up having markets for their products, and it becomes a whole healing of the entire environment, not only the grasslands, and you know all it all matters, man. It all matters, and uh, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. Really. No. Thank you. And thank, and you. thank you for having me on and, and your interest in keeping the message out there. So it's very important. You so got appreciate it. I was just in Chicago two weeks ago and uh, I'm coming up in May again. So if you don't mind, I'd love to stop by and, and say hello and get a walk around. Sure thing. Awesome. It'd be great. Thanks, Gary. Right. Okay. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Consider finally that it's just some stuff on a plate. None of it really matters. It doesn't define you as a person or make you any more special or less than anyone else. It's just a dance that we're engaged in. So we might as well laugh and enjoy every bit of it even the crappy parts. Or didn't you know that the purpose of your life should be to enjoy it? Many thanks for what you do and why you do it. No one can do what you do. I'm your host, Adam Lamb. I'm here to assist you in succeeding in your culinary career. Call me at 518-227-2055 and let's get your career cooking. Chef Life Radio is a production of FoodWorks, Inc., your source for culinary career empowerment at foodworksinc.com and in partnership with Audible. For listeners of Chef Life Radio, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Click on the ad in the show notes to grab something that can shift your trajectory forever. Tonight, I am recommending one of my favorites, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Enough said, right? To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Chef Life Radio. Again, that's audibletrial.com Chef Life Radio for your free audiobook. The Heirloom Foundation, a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization that is combating the prevalence of issues like suicide, substance abuse, and the emotional impact of long hours in a perfection-obsessed industry. 
They bring culinary professionals together to increase awareness about the repercussions of the high-stakes, high-pressure lives of chefs through public outreach, networking, and benefit events. The Heirloom Foundation advocates for healthier work environments through their network of chefs, restaurateurs, and other industry stakeholders who commit to providing a healthy, supportive restaurant culture. They reinvest in their communities through direct uh, service grants to nonprofit organizations that address mental health stress management, work-life balance, substance abuse prevention, life skills, and other relevant issues. Learn more at theheirloomfoundation.org. Chefs with Issues, Kat Kinsman's site that deals with real issues in the real world of depression, anxiety, addiction, eating disorders, and more running rampant in the food industry. On the site, she invites people involved in the industry, not just chefs, to share their stories and resources for dealing with the pressures of restaurant life so that other people may feel less alone. This is not for profit. This is just because she gives a damn. You can get involved and share your story at chefswithissues.com. And Entrepreneurial Chef Magazine, from idea to open, for business, entrepreneurialchef.com is building an online community where entrepreneurs in the industry can share lessons, best practices, and actionable advice for greater, lasting success. Visit entrepreneurialchef.com, join the club, and get your free copy of The Ten Rules of Entrepreneurship. In case you didn't realize it, we just got our asses kicked in there, man. Yeah, that's all right, brother. Love you like sin, miss you like poison. On Twitter, at Chef Life Radio, Facebook.com forward slash Chef Life Radio. Stan Tall and Frosty's brothers, sisters. Until next time here at Chef Life Radio, be good and do good. And we're going to lead you out with another amazing female guitarist who's mar- who married an equally talented guitarist. Here's the Tedeschi Truck Band with Whiskey Legs. <laughs> Slumber's cold in a winter 